Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15. We are finishing out Paul's discussion on the resurrection of the dead. You would join me in prayer for the reading of God's Word. God, indeed, you are our helper, and by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our minds, that as scriptures are read, as your word is proclaimed, that we would be led into your truth, that we would be taught your will. Father, that you would continue to illumine our minds and our hearts to the truth of the gospel that sets us free. We bless you and praise you for the kindness that you have given to us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. First Corinthians 15 is the classic text for funeral messages. And if you have heard some of my funeral messages, there will be some familiar echoes of them this morning. In the ancient world, it offered very little hope after death. It was mostly vague and depressing. One scholar put it this way. He said, Hades holds no comfort, no prospects, only a profound sense of loss. They found an ancient letter from the second century uh, in Egypt, and it was a letter written by a woman to a friend named Irene to comfort her in the loss of her child. And this is what she wrote. She said, I am so sorry and weep over the departed one, even as I wept over my Didymus. But nevertheless, against death, one can do nothing. Therefore, encourage each other. Encourage one another with what? There's nothing encouraging about her letter of comfort. The Greek view is summed up well from one of their own poets, Theocritus. He said in the third century, hopes are for the living. The dead have no hope. And that's the world that Christianity came into, into this bleakness. It came proclaiming that we have a real and substantial hope in Jesus. And Christianity has so changed the way the world thinks about death that we have gone from this very bleak and gloomy, hopeless state really to one of all dogs go to heaven. People speak of entering into the light after death as it should be an expectation for everyone. Heaven is a wonderful place that lets everyone in except Hitler and a few serial killers. That's sort of the the worldview that at least we have around here. This thinking is so pervasive 
that we have to, to temper it with the hard truths of the good news. Repentance from sin following Jesus are the marks of those who actually believe. But that has been the profound impact of Jesus upon the way that we think of death. Make no mistake, Easter stands at the very center of Christianity with its joyful proclamation that death has been overthrown, that death is conquered in victory. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, his people will have a certain hope of life after death with a transformed body that's made fit for eternity. Paul teaches here that this complete victory depends on the resurrection of the dead. A new creative act of God must take place, for God alone can bring about the change necessary for this to be permanent. A transformation must happen. Our bodies must be made fit for this new life in a restored kingdom. In Paul, he says this is a mystery that has now been made known, and it spells out Christ's victory over sin and death. So looking at this mystery beginning in verse 50, he says, I tell you, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. By flesh and blood, that is a very Jewish way of speaking of our current physical bodies. The bodies which have, which are marked by decay, marked by sickness and brokenness and death. It parallels with, when he says perishable, the same idea. Paul is speaking about those living in this condition who are still alive. And notice also that word inheritance. Paul uses this multiple times in his letters. The covenant promise of land to Israel has been broadened to an infinite horizon for all those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, behold, I I tell you a mystery. In the Bible, when you hear mystery, it means something previously unknown is now being revealed. What is being revealed? We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all be dead. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Uh, The we Paul is using there is because he's still alive as well. Likely he expected, as many did, that Jesus was coming back very soon, even in their own lifetime. But he refers to anyone who is still alive at Christ's return, whenever that would take place. Last week, we looked at a very similar passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, an instant change. When Jesus returns, he will usher in the end immediately. No secret rapture, no cars going off the road because drivers have disappeared. Jesus brings the end with him. Or rather, he brings the starting line. He brings the start of eternal life with him. In Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 3, he said, The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the hope. That's what Paul is speaking of. And he's saying if you're alive when Jesus returns, there will be an instant change of your body. You don't need to be raised. You need to be transformed. If you're already dead, then you need to be resurrected. And the body will be in this glorious state. For the living and the dead at his return, a transformation takes place. And any teaching that removes a a physical body from the future life in Christ is a false one. Because we were made body and soul. And and throughout history, there have been different groups that have arisen that speak of really only the spiritual things matter, not the body. 
Some of you may be familiar with even with the Jehovah's Witness teach that Jesus wasn't raised physically, but only spiritually. And this happened because Charles Russell, their founder, he predicted Jesus would return in 1914 in Brooklyn, New York. Well, when that didn't happen in a physical way, they re-understood that. Well, it did happen, but only spiritually and only to a chosen few. No, when Jesus returns, the world will know. It will be glorious, it will be grand, and it will be physical. We will be changed. All things will be made new. There will be no doubt about his return. And then Paul goes on and he repeats himself in 53 and 54 in order to emphasize what he's saying, to make it really clear. Because this piece was what many doubted because of their cultural understanding of death. For Greeks, the body was just a skin suit that needed to be gotten rid of so that the soul of the spirit could go on to be free somewhere. So Paul is correcting that. He's saying the perishable must put on the imperishable. What is mortal must put on what is immortal. Then shall come to pass what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. He's quoting there from Isaiah 25, that God will swallow up death forever, a new body which will not wear out or die. And the Greeks found this message of the resurrection foolishness. How could our bodies that we have live forever? Paul's saying they can't. That's the point. They need to be transformed. It's interesting, in in reading about death over the years, it seems that giving a solid explanation for why things die is not easy for biologists. Why do things age? Why do they die? We can describe that process really well. But the mechanism of why seems to have largely escaped researchers. Why does a healthy cell of anything grow and grow and grow, and then suddenly at some point it turns the other way and it dies? Why doesn't it keep going? What is that mechanism? Why is that the case? And often when you read um, some of these people writing about that, they, they start to use the language of metaphors and similes, even in scientific writings. They, they start using nature with a capital M because Even the most ardent of scientists can't help but smuggle in his or her philosophy of life and death. Because something takes place that we can't fully explain. Paul explained creational death this way from Romans 8. He said, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, but it was subjected in hope. That the creation itself would be set free from the bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This death, this futility, it laid upon all of creation because of sin. And the mystery to be revealed is that all will be transformed. That God is going to, by a powerful work, fit us for life in Him. And that, of course, speaks of the great victory of Christ. Christ's resurrection declares Him to be the Son of God. Our triune God is made present with us through the Son, through the Incarnation. 
And that is fully vindicated in the resurrection from the dead. We don't just come to terms with death. We celebrate its ultimate defeat. Quoting from Hosea 13, Paul, he bursts into a joyous taunt of death, very familiar to us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the full verse in Isaiah or in Hosea, he said, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, the grave. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? And then he goes on. Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, both in Romans and Galatians, Paul says very familiar things, and he expounds that much more clearly. But the question is, well, how is sin the sting of death? One scholar has summarized this well. He said, Paul alternates between seeing death's power behind sin's throne and seeing the power of sin behind the throne of death. That both of these things are present. Our sin is a turning away from God. We become centered on ourselves. And that is deadly poison to all humanity. That's what's taking place in our sin. Well, how is that then? The power of sin, the law. Well, the law, God's word, ties us to the effects of our past action. It tells us what sin is. We're tied to the consequences of our own self-centeredness, our self-destruction, our guilt, and our death. And the good news is that Jesus liberates us from the cause and the effect of the law. God's law, it tells us what's wrong, but it doesn't fix what's wrong. It puts us under condemnation, spiritual death is what comes from sin. When sin is forgiven, death loses its sting. And that's the glorious news of Jesus. Jesus has conquered sin and death. He has fully fulfilled the law's demand, and we have been set free. And that's why Paul then says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he summarizes it all in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, Paul is not simply just pointing them ahead to better future days. Notice the verbs he's using, the tenses. He's telling them to live now with this in mind. Allow the end to enter into the now in how we live. And how we care for one another. What is done in the Lord will carry forward into the future. So proclaiming the saving message of Jesus carries forward, certainly with the people who are believing in him. But what about acts of kindness? What about care for creation? We mentioned last week, care for creation, care for critters, and care for God's people everywhere. How does that go forward? Well, all righteous acts shape our character, it shapes our capacity to worship and to enjoy God. We begin now that transformative work of the Holy Spirit going forward by how we live the reality of that now. That's the good news. It's not simply wait one day. It's begin now because the power of Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Well, what are implications of this? Historically, Christians have taken care of their dead. The body has been treated with dignity and respect. 
As Christianity spread through the world, so did cemeteries. Burials replaced burning. Body burial has been held as the best statement of our theology of the resurrection. I'm not saying cremation is a sin. There are reasons why some have chosen that. I am saying that body burial has been the norm for Christians because it best represents our future hope. We even bury our dead facing east because that's the direction of Christ's return in Scripture. If you're interested, we actually have a little booklet on this uh, downstairs in the, the magazine rack downstairs. But we also see the absolute centrality of the resurrection to our faith. Jesus declared in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes me, though he die, yet he shall live. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles said they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with Jesus in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 1 Peter 1. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Multiple times in those books, the resurrection is mentioned, not only there, but through 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, Hebrews, Revelation. Sometimes we read it so often and, and we're so familiar with it, our eyes just sort of skip over it. Forgetting how profound this message is, how central it is to all of the message of Christianity. God has made us body and soul. And through our bodies, we relate to the rest of God's physical creation. We were made for this kind of embodied communion with one another. That's how God has, has created us. Death separates what was never meant to be taken apart. Now, departed souls are before the presence of God, but in an incomplete state. Easter stands in the center for us. The promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent, he said, One is coming who will crush your head. One who will undo the curse forever. And we see that in the person and work of Jesus. I appreciate uh, Orthodox minister Alexander Schmemann, he's put this really well. He said, for Christianity, help is not the criteria. Truth is the criteria. The purpose of Christianity is not to help people by reconciling them with death, but to reveal the truth about life and death so that people may be saved by this truth. Christianity is not reconciliation with death. It's the revelation of life. Christ is the life. And only if Christ is the life is death what Christianity proclaims it to be. Namely, the enemy to be destroyed and not a mystery to be explained. Jesus has crushed our enemy. That is the hope that we have. That is the confidence that is given to us in his resurrection from the dead. Think about it this way. Each day we now live is one day taken away from our total. We're told to count the number of our days. Why? Because they are clocking down. It is an ignominious countdown. But we were made 
so that each day should be an addition to and not a subtraction from. Can you imagine? It's hard to even think about that. Think of some of the hobbies and pursuits you have that are limited by time. What would that look like if each day was a build of the previous and moving towards an infinite horizon? We were made for addition, not subtraction. And we live in the futility of subtraction now. And the older you get, the faster time seems to move on. I can still vividly remember sitting in my third grade class. It was spring. It was a beautiful day. And I was sitting by the window and I looked out and I wanted to be out there and not in the classroom. And an idea struck me for the first time. It dawned on me that I had nine more years of school to go. That seemed like forever in the third grade. It was a depressing thought. That, that weight of that. I will never be a senior in high school. Had I known I would spend another 12 in school after that, <laughs> I would have run away. Now, all that is something like two blinks ago. That's how quickly it goes. And, and along the way, I like you. I've lost family and friends to death. Grief and loss are always before us. And the older you get, the more that number starts to increase. There are people we love who aren't here. We feel the weight. There's a hole that is missing that will not be filled entirely until the resurrection of the dead. And so we bear that loss. We bear that pain, but we do so as those with hope because it's not the end of the story. Jesus wins it all back. And resurrection marks not only our future hope, but it marks our present life. In Christ, no failure is final. There's always the hope of life and renewal in anything that seems beyond our repair, anything that seems dead. Ours is a faith of resurrection. There are times and places where you look and see there are relational carnage that just looks like it is just a pileup. That there is no way this is going to come back together. And in human terms, you're right. But we serve a God of the living. We serve a God who brings dead things to life. Not only our bodies, but also relationships. Also events that seem way beyond the pale of repair. Because we have a God of resurrection. We are not marked by death. We're not marked by by death in the, the totality of what that means. And yes, we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, there are times in front of us like, Lord, that's the last thing I see here is anything green, growing, and vibrant. It all looks bleak, gloomy pale and dead. But I know by faith that God has the power to be able to change that circumstance. And I know that He is not finished in the work in my life, in your life, in our sanctification. When Paul, he he points them back to the here and the now, that's why. 
that the power of Christ is not simply pie in the sky, wait till the end. It's now. It's here we begin that future trek. And that is certainly the foundation of confidence that we have. As we go through a life that's marked by so much depravity, sin, and misery, so many situations where, like, I don't know how anything good is going to come out of that. We serve a God of the living, not a God of the dead. We serve a God who can bring life into anything that seems so far beyond our ability to change it. And that is the good news of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we live with the hope and the reality of Easter in us. His spirit dwells in his people. And this simply isn't just as we age, we long for, look for this. It's right now. Because even at the youngest of ages here, there is brokenness and sin and things and failures that look so far beyond what's humanly possible. We serve a God of resurrection, of new life. And he has called us then to live in the fullness of that as we extend the work and the ministry of Christ to the people around us and often to the world. Easter resurrection, the power of the gospel in front of us. That is certainly hope worth living for. Pray with me. Father, indeed, we are so grateful that you have not left us to our state of sin and misery. Father, not only do we have the joy of renewal in front of us, Father, we thank you for that renewal even now, and we pray for more of it. We pray, Father, that you would not only forgive us, for we have doubted your ability to change things, but, Father, where we have simply also just given up. We pray by your Spirit that he would continue to to move us, to motivate us, that in these changes, that great glory would be given to our Savior, Jesus. Father, we pray that he would be glorified in the lives of his people. We bless you for the kindness that we have received, the hope that has been given, the foundation of our faith in Christ. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. You would please stand together.